Welcome to the podcast edition of the University of Queensland's COVID-19 and Investing webinar. This webinar was held on the 15th of October 2020 as part of the UQ Young Alumni Get Finance Fit series. Our first panellist and the host of today's conversation is Andrew Courtney. Andrew initially completed a Bachelor of Biomedical Science before discovering his real passion lay with finance. He made the switch from science to finance by completing his Masters of Commerce at UQ and is now the co-founder of wealth management firm Plentitude Wealth. What underpins all of this is a solid cash flow management system where you're at a surplus on a month-to-month basis because if you're not at a surplus, you're going nowhere financially. Our second panellist is UQ Bachelor of Economics alumnus Effie Zahos. Effie is editor-at-large at CanStar and former editor of Money Magazine. She is the author of A Real Girl's Guide to Money and provides regular financial commentary on TV and radio across Australia. These are, these are tips that I give regularly. They are simple, but I do find often simple things are the best. Our third panellist, Professor Sean Bond, is also a UQ Bachelor of Economics alumnus. Sean recently returned to UQ as the Frank Finn Professor of Finance after spending 24 years studying and teaching overseas. Sean is an expert in real estate finance and financial economics. For people starting out, I'd say definitely keep thinking about how you invest in yourself. Uh, You know, you are your human capital, your skills and ability is, is the major asset you have at this stage. Before we get into the podcast, just a disclaimer that the following is for general information purposes only. It is not intended to be, nor should it be, taken as specific personal advice. So, keeping that in mind, here's Andrew Courtney to kick us off. I guess what I'd like to do is uh, start off with asking you, Effie, what, what your thoughts are about investments in general. And uh, if I was to ask you as a, uh, for example, if I was to pretend I just finished my uh, degree and um, just started earning my first salary of two years in, I'm starting to build up a, a bit of savings. What would you tell me? Um, what, what should I be looking for? Uh, that you'll get to my age pretty fast. That's what I'll tell you. Look, I, I guess if I had to go back to my younger self, exactly what, you know, what you're saying now. These are, these are tips that I give regularly. They are simple, but I do find often simple things are the best. For me, it's never been uh, timing the market. It is time in the market. And that's really important for someone like myself that talks money day in, day out. I still don't have the time for myself or probably the expertise to be nitpicking every single day and swapping and trading. I have done quite well with the income I've got, just being very wise about not timing the market, but just being in the market. And I think what I've said, um, uh, you know, my younger self, my biggest regret was that I didn't salary sacrifice when I got my first paycheck. I do regret that. And I had that feeling uh, or sense of like, I'm too young. It's, you know, it's not important. There's no way I want a salary sacrifice $50. Just the name of it sounded painful. So that was my first tip. The other one is don't think you need a lot to jump into investing. You actually don't. Small amounts can make a big change. I think we're going to touch on some of that stuff tonight about there are some great 
products and platforms that allow you to dip your toes in the market, get over your fear of investing. And then the other one is only invest in what you know. It's not rocket science. You can invest in yourself. You are the most important asset or fixed interest, cash, shares, property, super. That's it. It's a handful of things. And I only invest in what I know. I keep it simple and I, I do pretty good. Excellent. Thanks for sharing, Effie. Lots of uh, good takeaways there. How about you, Sean? If you had a chance to go back to be around your 20s again. Well, what would I be doing with my money? I thought you were going to say something else then. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's lots of things I would like to be doing if I was 20 again. But um, you know, focus that, focusing that on, on the money question, you know, I, I very much agree with a lot of what Effie said as well there. Um, you know, for people starting out, I'd say definitely keep thinking about how you invest in yourself. Uh, you know, you are, your, your human capital, your skills and ability is, is the major asset you have at this stage. So whatever you can do to think about how do you enhance the return on that asset, I think is very important as well. So, you know, maybe that means thinking about graduate school or a graduate degree at some point when it's, it's time for you to consider that uh, as you build your career or, or getting on, on the job training, um, you know, thinking about how to become you know, one of the best people in your profession. So I, I think definitely think about how do you invest in yourself? That would be my number one tip. Once again, as, as Effie said, you know, um, the great thing if you're in the workforce, you know, you're required to put money into superannuation uh, and that's a good way to start your investment career. Uh, so definitely take advantage of whatever you can and, you know, maybe just putting in a little bit more if it makes sense. Just get into the habit of regular savings. The other thing I would say, and we might touch on some of this as we go through a bit later on, start thinking about building a little bit of a financial buffer as well, because what you don't want to do is start to like living paycheck check to paycheck at a young age. Uh, and you know, an expensive bill, you know, uh, unforeseen redundancy, you know, we've seen the whole COVID situation. And unfortunately, the COVID situation has hit young workers very hard. Uh, in fact, there's some... Um, data out from the Reserve Bank today, which shows just how uneven this recession has been. And overwhelmingly, in terms of job losses, in terms of you know, sectors that are affected, it's you know, the job losses have hit young people the hardest. Uh, and many of the sectors that young people are the major employee, um, employees in have also been hit hardest as well. So there's this double whammy facing a lot of young people. And if anything, as I said, that kind of like, to me, points to the need that young people should be thinking about building a bit of a financial buffer, uh, even if it's just working towards having $2,000 in the bank or, or something like that. Just try to have something or work towards building up your reserve fund for an emergency. I, I think that's key. And the other thing I would say is think about having a budget. I mean, budgets are boring. Uh, they're not sexy at all. But, you know, if you can start thinking without getting crazy, without going overboard, just be thinking a little bit how you're managing your money. And yeah, you're young, you should be having fun. There's lots of things you want to do. And you know, maybe there's a trip to Europe in your future or you know, some other exciting things. Definitely, you know, life is there to enjoy. But if you put in place, sort of like you start thinking about super, getting that locked in, start trying to build a bit of an emergency fund and start thinking about how you're using your money uh, I, I think that's a great tip. You know, th those are very important for young people to be thinking about. Thanks very much for sharing, Sean. Um, yeah, that's that's huge. Lots of uh, lots of good stuff there. 
the one that I picked up on is the human capital. It's so, so important. You know, it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people tend to forget. You know, we go through university and suddenly the learning typically stops for, unfortunately, the majority of the people. But ultimately, to be competitive in the marketplace, to keep your job, um, to be valuable, you need to keep building on your skills, right? Whether it be you running a business or an employee or become an entrepreneur as you kind of build up build your career towards going up to the executive suite kind of thing, if that's what you're into, it's all about learning. If you're not learning, you're essentially not progressing. So, so that's a massive point that um, Sean brought up that tends to get forgotten. Um, the problem we have is there's so many um, distractions like Netflix and um, all, sorts of, all sorts of stuff that we can, we can do and we take it one step too far. So if we can sort of carve out a few hours on a day-to-day basis and focus on that growth and focus on getting better, it'll make our lives a hell of a lot easier. We're all investors here, right? Everyone's got a superannuation. Any, anyone who's worked um, in the past has got a superannuation fund. Therefore, we're all investors. So what we need to do is take a step back and consider starting with the end in mind. Right? So what is the ideal lifestyle? What, is, what are you trying to achieve in terms of goals for financially? Right? And I always start off with income goals and capital goals because they're actually intertwined. Right? So as an investor, you build up your capital so that you can produce an income for you so that you can pull a lever so you can go part-time or, for, or take, take yourself away from that particular job, move on and follow your passions essentially, right? So that's, what, that's the game that we're playing here. So there's the income goal and there's the capital goal. So you could ask yourself, well, how much income do you actually need? So I like to set a goal, a stretch goal, and a bit of a scary goal. So the goal, initial goal that you'd want to set yourself is how do you replace your expenses, i.e. your minimum viable lifestyle? So if you can pull everything back, your survive number whether it be 50% of your salary or 40% or 60% of your salary, whatever that number is, you've got that goal as an initial goal to hit as an income. And then you multiply that up by 20 or 25, and then suddenly you've got your capital goal. So this is the end point. So if you start with the end in mind, it makes it easier to sacrifice on the front end and understanding there's a timeline associated with that. And obviously, superannuation and investing outside of super fits within that particular timeline. Right? And you've got to ask yourself, well, how do you get there faster? There are three key things that every investor needs to consider. What are they? Saving more year in, year out, right? If you can, if you can produce a surplus, i.e. the budget that Sean alluded to earlier, you'll be in a position to start investing. Build yourself that buffer. Start investing the surplus and actually build that up so that you can work out a strategy to do the second thing, which is lower your taxes. If you can be strategic about that, it starts to kind of grow and the momentum starts to build. The third and final thing is to invest better, right? So if you put your cash into a bank account, unfortunately, with taxes and inflation, you're going to be going backwards. So you need to, you're actually forced to invest if you want your money to grow to hit your capital and your income goals, right? So those are the three key things that we must do. Save more, lower our taxes, invest better for the long haul, and constantly look at what we've done rather than what everyone else has done, right? Because it's not about a race against everyone else. It's a race against ourselves. So have a look at what you've done last year. Ask yourself, how can I optimize for a better outcome with those three categories? Understand this thing called the rule of 72. If you look at an investment return, 
What you want to do is you want to double your net asset position. And the rule of 72 allows you to go ahead and do that, to work out the maths associated with it. Now, if you can average, let's hypothetically say, 7.2% return on investment or growth on your net asset position, what you do is you go 72 divided by 7.2 equals 10. See what I did there? Made, uh, made, my, made my life a little bit easier with the maths. Um, it, it'll take you 10 years to double your net asset position, right? So back to starting with the end in mind. You go your income goal and your capital goal. You start where you are today. And the idea here is you want to find out how many times you, dub, you need to double your net asset position to get to the back end of your investment career. A lot of people never get there because they can't even set a goal to begin with. So what I'd love for you to do is actually consider what kind of income and capital goal would you like in the future? Start setting a goal and it makes it a little bit easier to actually make the sacrifices today. So without further ado, let's get started with, uh, with the first question. And Effie, first question from Marina. Should I look for shares that are higher risk while I'm younger and have no dependents? Let's just uh, <laughs> throw that in there straight away. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Burn it all, okay. Um, no. Higher risk. Okay, so when you look at the spectrum of returns, risk equals reward and the idea is the higher the risk supposedly the higher the reward may actually not get anything as well i think what you need to do is not jump into something as um is this really risky i'm going to invest in it no matter what you still need to do your due diligence you still need to research if you are picking shares it's um some common sense really applies too when you look at it what sets this company apart? What does this company do? What are its competitors? What are its threats? Uh, what's happening at the economy at the moment that could make it be really well? So when you look at, you know, stocks like, say, CSL, we've got an ageing population. It seems to be a no-brainer. Has it got other competitors? It could be there. You look at other things like Transurban, did extremely well. No one expected a pandemic. No one expected some of their revenue to fall down with tolls. I mean, it's since recovered by there, but it actually did fall down quite a bit during the, the, the peak of pandemic. You've got to jump into shares like any other investment. I mean, would you lend, you know, 20000 to a friend? You'd make an assessment. What do you want it for? What is this friend of mine? Who are they? How are they going to repay it? So the same goes when you invest in shares. And there's a lot of indicators that you need to, to look at as well that can help you to see the health of a company. So for me, just to say, jump into something because it's risky, doesn't necessarily mean you're actually going to get a higher return. It still requires a lot of research if you are going to buy into an individual stock. And Sean, off the back of that, I've got a question here from an anonymous attendee. Would investing all of your savings in the share market be a safe investment to maximise your saving potential? What are your thoughts about that one? Yeah, once again, it's a, a, good, a good question, yeah, challenging question in terms of, you know, I'd like to, it's hard to give specific advice to someone, as we've mentioned. You know, I think you should think about making sure you've got a good spread of your investments uh, you know, is this money that you need for a particular purpose or is this long-term savings? Uh, and then you have to think, well, if it's long-term savings that, um, you know, I'm putting aside, might it be more tax efficient to do that through your superannuation fund or not? You know, that's something you may need to speak to an advisor about. If you have a bit of extra money, 
in your particular situation, does it make sense to add that to super, you know, salary sacrifices, as you mentioned, but there's limits to how much you can put into your superannuation fund. So, you know, if you're already sort of like maxed out there and you still have extra money that you want to put to long-term savings, uh, then certainly, you know, it can make sense to think about maybe a broad-based uh, index fund or a, a managed investment fund of, of uh, some kind to, to sort of like grow over time. Um, but, you know, if you're also looking at that's going to be used to pay for your kid's school fees next year, or that's going to go to the car that you're going to be replacing in two or three years, maybe shares aren't the right type of investment for that. And you're better off putting that in a, uh, a savings account or something like that, that's safer, that when that bill comes up, you know, the money's there to take advantage of. So, um, you know, once again, without knowing too much about that person's you know, reasons for asking that question, um, you know, hopefully there's some things that they might want to think about. Yeah, off the back of that, Sean, there's a, there's a question here. Would you, uh, would you say your investment slash financial advice has changed as a result of COVID and what has changed? Look, in terms of, in terms of cash flows and investments, um, a lot of my clients and a lot of people in general are, are reluctant to invest more at, the, at this particular stage in time because of the uncertainty back to the buffers. If you can get a buffer in place where you feel a little bit more resilient, where you've got options and you know if something were to happen to you, i.e. you lose your income tomorrow, you've got, let's say, a three to six month buffer in place or a runway in place to provide you the opportunity to go and chase after that next gig, you get that peace of mind. Therefore, it's okay to keep investing. People who are living week to week will never invest because they don't have a surplus and they'd be freaking out. They'd be like, if they started to invest, they'd be looking at the market every single day and they'd, they'd have a heart attack, right? Because it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. It's, it's volatile. Sorry to jump in, but just to follow up on that, I think there's an important point here. And it was something we, we discussed back in April. Um, you know, if there's one lesson from the COVID crisis, and I think there's many lessons for investors from the COVID crisis, we should be thinking, all of us should be thinking about, well, what current asset allocation do we have? So what's our spread? What type of funds um, are we currently invested in? How did we feel when the market went down 40%? Because I certainly, you know, I had family members who sold everything, you know, sold out of the the share market at the bottom, uh, and then they missed out on the subsequent growth. And, you know, that was an example of maybe people being in investments where they fully didn't fully appreciate the risk. And that comes back to the question that Effie asked as well. So I think, you know, some, all investors should think back to how did you behave during the COVID crisis? Did you panic and go to sell or did you feel sick or did you think, okay, well, maybe I'll buy some more shares because they're really cheap. Uh, and, and, you know, that starts to give you a more honest assessment of your risk profile. Mm-hmm. You know, can you really handle higher risk investments or do you need to dial back on the risk mm-hmm. a little bit by changing the mix of how much you invest in equities or stocks relative to, say, safer bond funds or, or government debt funds? And, Sean, that's, a, that's actually a good point. I mean, if I can just add in too, Andrew, here that, I think for a lot of people, if you're listening and you you haven't invested, just have a look at your super statements that are coming through right now, because that is a form of investment. And I think in April, we did speak a little bit about this. And there was a lot of panic, a lot of fear. A lot of people say, I'm going to jump out of my asset class that I'm in, whether that was growth, because um, a lot of attendees were also in that age bracket that we're talking to today. You know, I'm in a higher uh, risk factor. I'm going to get out and jump in. If you open your super statement now, you'll probably find if you are in a balanced fund. I mean, I had a good look at mine uh, yesterday 
I did a segment on this on, on today's show this morning and found that the average balance fund on my super st- statement, it has a benchmark. They're actually quite easy to read these days, believe it or not. Um, visually attractive. I actually enjoy reading my super statements. It had a benchmark showing, okay, the benchmark was a negative 8.2%. My fund returned actually a positive 0.52%. It was negative 0.82. And uh, just went to show, just goes to show that during that period of February, March, April, it just dived down. And then now looking at my balance, it's so much healthier. Um, And then when you look at its five-year and 10-year return, you get to see the picture. I mean, time is wonderful, of course. It wouldn't have been good if I had to draw that money at that time. I didn't, fortunately. But a a good example of what Sean was saying about, um, you know, uh, don't panic and consider the the, the options. And your super statement would really show that right now. Absolutely. And Effie, I've got a question for you about um, FIRE, financial independence retirement Uh, early. What's your opinion on this movement? And do you think it's a legitimate and safe way to support yourself in your financial future? Uh, look, apps, they are one dedicated budget <laughs> people. I tell you what, I can't beat them. Dedication, dedication, dedication. And what are they trying to achieve, Effie? Yeah, they're trying to achieve financial independence at a very early age. Doesn't necessarily mean they want to stop working either. Uh, I think when I first came across it, my perception was, what, they want to retire at 30? What are you going to do at 30? It, it, it's not about that. It's a, it's a competitive sport for some of them. Look, for me, it's all about balance. Um, so I'm in it for uh, probably a longer journey and I'm quite happy with that. For me, it's more balance, but it, it's, it's a legit. And there's lots of podcasts and websites that you can follow and see their plans and so on. I definitely can't knock it at all. Um, hats off to them. Uh, sacrificing a bit now to get that gain later on. Yeah, each to their own. Yeah, so a little bit about the FIRE movement. Some people... Some of these people are actually saving about 50 to 60 to 70% of their take-home income back to, what's the end point, right? To save enough capital to invest in reasonably conservative investments, right? To get them 4% per annum to replace their minimum viable lifestyle. That's pretty much the game that they're playing. And that's the game that we're all playing, mm. right? So in the, meantime, in the meantime, Effie mentioned, the key thing is you've got to find that balance. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, um, but unfortunately, it's just the way it is. I tell my clients all the time, it's always a balancing act between investments and lifestyle. If every single decision you make is about lifestyle, your investments typically suffer. And if everything, i.e. fire, if, they, if they're saving 80% of their income and living, on, living off me goreng and that kind of stuff, I've been guilty of that in the past, and they're, and they're investing everything, obviously, lifestyle takes a hit. Right, so you got to ask yourself, well, what is it for you? And you know, everyone's got a different answer to that. That, that lifestyle—it's like I was saying. I have dragged mine out more so, but the advantage with the fire—if you can save that amount, as you were saying, Andrew. Like I have met and interviewed some of these people. Um, you know, you—I remember one where cupboard was open. There was literally five shirts in there. That's all I need. Monday to Friday, I don't need any more. When they actually fall apart, I'll buy another one. And the advantage is that that compound interest works earlier, doesn't it? And, and it builds that passive income a lot faster. So it's probably less paying, but it's at the stage of our lives that we want to have so much freedom and choice, so to speak. But then there comes to a point where it does tip over and I can see the, um, you know, the advantage of, of all that discipline come through. Yes, yes, without mm. a doubt. Mm. Sean, I've got a question for you. It's an interesting one by Cade. 
I've been given some advice that it's best to look at the absolute value of both debt and assets. Sometimes it might be more strategic to pay down debt, i.e. credit cards with high interest rate, or to invest in the share market rather than paying off debt, mortgage, mortgage debt. Is this something the panelists can talk, talk about? Um, yeah, great question. And you know, once again, just my comments are very general, um, but absolutely. And you know, this is how businesses work. You know, when BHP wants to build a new mine, it doesn't save up the money and pay for that mine in cash. You know, it often uses a mix of debt and equity. So, and, you know, for most of us, when it comes to buying a house, you know, we do think about using a mortgage because the rate of return on real estate has generally been well in excess of the cost of borrowing money. So in terms of thinking about the sort of like the, the positive effect associated with borrowing in that case, that can make a lot of sense. You know, consumer debt, however, is fairly expensive form of debt. So if you're borrowing for an overseas holiday or, or something like that, or um, borrowing for a, a, a new car, you know, that, that's often more expensive. And, and there, I guess, people are using debt for uh, consumption as opposed to investment. Uh, and there you have to think, well, you know, is, is that justified? And, you know, in some cases, if you need to get to work, um, you know, your job requires a car and maybe if you don't have the, the funds at the moment, maybe you do have to sort of like borrow money to um, buy a car in order to get to work to fulfill your job. So, you know, once again, I know lots of people use debt for lots of different reasons, but I think you're, um, you know, the, the person who asked the question was really quite smart in thinking, well, for each of us, you know, we can think about all our assets as well as our liability. So, you know, something I've found just in my own personal financial planning is I try to do um, a balance sheet, you know, just like a company does. And I list out all my assets and I list out all the debt I own because it's, you know, it's okay, all well and good to look in your, um, at your super fund and say, oh, I've got a nice balance, but then you've got a, a fairly large mortgage as well. So when you look at your assets minus your liabilities, maybe your over, overall net position isn't as good as it, as it should be. So I think absolutely general advice might be to, uh, you know, think of yourself a little bit like a company in terms of, you know, where are you investing? And then how are you going to fund those investments? If it's something like a house, it's very common. I mean, you don't have to use a mortgage to buy a house. You know, some people do save up and particularly if you live in a rural area, maybe that's a little bit more feasible. But uh, in some cases, once again, maybe if you do have a lot of savings, uh, you may want to keep some of that in the share market and take a little bit bigger mortgage because that, once again, particularly in the current environment, the cost of debt is fairly low. So I, I do think it makes sense to think about, well, where are you investing? What it, what's the rate of return on those investments? And if you are using debt, what's the cost of debt? Anything to add, Effie, before I chime in? Yeah, uh, great point um, with regards to doing a, a balance sheet. I thought um, that was brilliant. I would say when you're looking at that debt situation, you've got to get that monkey off your back. But first, before you go there, I'm really enjoying more behavioural economics as to why did you get there in the first place? So kind of address that too. You've got this thing called like a, a payday life cycle. You get paid, you feel loaded, you're rich, you're, you know, you, 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 your mind's going, this is great, I'm in a great position, I'm going out to dinner. Then you start realising, oh, no, I've got some debts, so I better pay that. Uh, you know, now my pay's not that good, but I want to buy that, you buy that. And then you go, oh, I've got to wait for payday, payday, payday. So that payday life cycle, just try and understand why you are in debt if you have got bad debt. Then work out some strategies. You've got to get that monkey off your back before you invest. And the reason I say that is that bad debt normally does come with high interest, as Sean was saying. 
Um, so do a snowball method or an avalanche method. The idea here is either pick something that start paying off your debts that are small, because that may be a win for you. I paid off my $1,000 credit card and I'll now focus on the big ones. And if you are focusing on a particular debt, set everything on your minimum repayments and then knock that one off pretty fast. There's lots of different ways to, to manage your debt to get rid of it. Again, you've got to be disciplined. Then when you come into your investing, whether you go that way, You've got to, um, as you're saying, Sean, too, you know, general advice here, I'm not a financial advisor, but um, you have to look at, can I get a better return? So a lot of us will, a lot of you will be coming out of uni with the hex debt, hex help debt. So do you pay that off? Well, at the moment now, you don't do it to a threshold, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andrews, I think it's around 56,000 or something like that. It's indexed at inflation on the 1st of June at 1.8. That's for now. It hasn't come out the, the new uh, number for 2021. So what you're trying to say, if you're going to pay that debt off, you're going to say, then I can't get a better return than that. You can get a better return. You leave that there. It's the cheapest debt you'll ever get. There's no interest. It's still being indexed. Um, so then you look for somewhere else. So the same goes, if you've got a home loan, do I invest in the share market? Or if I've got a help debt, do I, help debt, do I invest in the share market? Well, your, your help debt's at 1.8. Can you get a better return out there? And will you be taxed on that? So you've got to get some advice because all that's got to come into it as well. If you can't, then you're better off paying it off. You would not be saving in an a, a online saver because that's only at 2%. You're not going to get a lot, then you get taxed on that. So you just got to play with some sums and get some expert advice. But there are definitely merits, a great question, where it may pay to juggle a couple, juggle a home loan or juggle, juggle your help debt while you're investing in the share market is quite possible. I think sometimes it's perfectly valid to think about what makes you most comfortable, what helps you sleep at night. So yes, you can do the, the sort of like detailed financial analysis to two decimal places on a spreadsheet in terms of, you know, does this make sense? And, you know, that, that's great. That's what we teach our MBA students. But at the end of the day, if you sleep better knowing that you're paying your mortgage off or you're going to have your mortgage paid off by the time you retire, you know, that can be worth a lot to you as well. And that shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, so on, off the back of what, what Sean and Effie's just shared, I mean, there's, there's this thing called, I like to call the financial decision framework. So if I can get you to get your pens out and write three things, I'll get you to write ROI, return on investment, your risk-free return, RF, right, and your cost of capital, COC. Cost of capital is basically the cost of your debt, right? So you've got to ask yourself, well, if you write all of these things, what is your current return on investment in your portfolio? What is the risk-free return that you know you're going to get guaranteed? And what is the cost of capital? And then you can start allocating your capital accordingly. Because all you're doing is you are like a business, as Sean mentioned, you're allocating a certain portion of your capital to get you a higher return on investment. If your return on investment is lower than your cost of capital, i.e. if you've got a credit card debt of $22,000 at 22%, I'm inclined to think, well, it's going to be hard as an investor, not impossible, but very difficult to consistently get 22%. So it's best to put your surplus money towards a high cost of capital. Now, back to Cade's question. If you've got a mortgage at 2.2 or 1.9%, let's hypothetically say, the question that you've got to ask yourself is, what, as an investor, what kind of return on investment can you get from that extra $10,000 per year that you can save? Is it higher than the cost of capital of 1.9 plus tax? Don't forget that, right? So, so essentially, is it higher than 2.5%? And if it is, maybe it's worthwhile having a look at it. 
or maybe spread it out across both. Back to it, passing the sleep test, as Sean alluded to earlier. If you're freaking out about certain things, you're not passing the sleep test. If you're losing any sleep whatsoever, you shouldn't be doing it. So, so ultimately, it's back to that financial decision framework. If your return investment's higher than the cost of capital, it's worthwhile having a look. And then it's about comfort levels as an investor. And then you just diversify across, see what options you have in front of you, and then make consistent decisions with the money that you're saving. Right? What underpins all of this is a solid cash flow management system where you're at a surplus on a month-to-month -month basis. Because if you're not at a surplus, you're going nowhere financially. Right? You're literally re relying on your superannuation um, at the back end of your investment career. So the underlying asset is key when it comes to this financial decision framework. Very, very important. I've got a question um, for you, Effie. We had a, um, one, of the, one of the audience members asked about salary sacrifice. So when you say that you recommend salary sacrificing, do you recommend salary sacrificing superannuation or something else? I know my employer allows salary sacrificing for a car, but I didn't consider this to be a good investment and haven't taken this option. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was talking at that stage um, about salary sacrificing into your super. And the reason being there is that the, the tax perks. At this moment, I still believe that super is probably one of the best wealth creation strategies for, for most Aussies. Be interesting to see when the retirement income review uh, uh, paper comes out, which is basically, I believe the government is still sitting on that. And they're looking at the, the three pillars, basically. How does your super talk to the pension and how does that talk to your investments outside? I think that's going to be very interesting. We also saw in the budget some changes to super as well. Some of them was great, the, the fact that when you change jobs, it's going to stick with you. Yet to see, I'd like to see some more details on how they're going to rank this. I know it's net of fees. The argument is that they're going to peg it to indices, which could make the industry a lot more passive. So there's going to be some changes happening in the super industry. So long as the key elements stay intact, I like it. So the salary sacrificing I was talking about there was your employer at the moment puts 9.5. At the moment, it's legislated that is going to increase to eventually 12%. I believe the government's going to be talking about that in January, whether it goes, there's pros and cons. Should we be doing this? Is it stopping businesses from giving you a wage rise? Personally, I'd like the SG contribution to go up to 10 because I don't think I'm going to get a pay rise, to be honest. So I might as well get it some way or another. And the reason uh, the tax perks there, it's, it's actually at 15%. So it comes out of your pre-tax dollars and you go straight into your super fund to generalise. Um, and you're only taxed 15% as opposed to your marginal tax rate. So that's the beauty about it. Um, and you have that tax concession up to $25,000 for the financial year. And that includes your boss's payments as well. So the 9.5 and what you put in. Take care. Super funds have got some great calculators. Have a look and play around with those. Actually, salary sacrifice, you can, you can technically salary sacrifice your mortgage. And funny you should ask that because we just did a story about that on CanStar's website. So I urge you go there and have a look at it. We've got a tax expert to look at it. Not as easy as you think. So going back to your car, it's on this similar principle, but your employer has to want to do it because, and Andrew, I'm going to rely on you here, I hope, because this is getting really technical, the FBT, um, uh, the fringe benefit tax that may be applicable to your employer. They've got to weigh it up. Do I want to give this to you or not? But um, look, with cars, it's a 
depreciated asset. As soon as you have a loan on it, whether you're salary sacrificing, whether you're getting a personal loan, whether you get an innovated lease, which is the same kind of thing, whether you're getting a, um, a dealer loan, it's a loan as soon as you drive out. I've only ever, ever taken a loan once. When I got my first car and um, I paid that loan, I've got a personal loan. Mum and dad didn't help me. So kids, if you're listening, they're not. But if you're listening, you're not getting a car off me. I paid that loan off really fast in about eight months. I've never taken a personal loan out again. I have saved for my money on a car because I can't think of a faster way to lose some money. And the, the unfortunate thing with this car industry in the sense with these balloon payments, it's a situation where you've made your repayment, you've got a balloon, you don't want to pay it. This is a big sum after three years of payment. And they do that because your interest rate can be lower. You're then back in that circle again. So you are forever paying these four wheels off. And as soon as you walk, drive out of a car, it's gone. If you can, if you can pay cash, save for it, go for it. But I do understand you can't always do it. So talk to a tax expert, speak to your employer, but it is quite possible. And then, um, yeah, get onto the CanStar website and just have a look at some of those articles on salary sacrificing. Good rule of thumb, guys, if, is if you're investing and if you're using debt to invest in anything, you got to look at the underlying asset. And if it's appreciating in value, it's worth having a look at it. If it's depreciating in value, it is bad debt and I'd stay away from it, right? So, um, like, I, I understand that memories appreciate in value, but not in your balance sheet, not in your financials. So you can't get debt and go on a holiday if you're looking at it from a financially prudent perspective, right? So, so because it appreciates in your head, but doesn't, it depreciates in the, in the balance sheet. So you need to keep that into consideration when investing and when making these capital decisions. Right, very important. Now, um, Sean, obviously you're, you're um, part of the University of Queensland. There was a question around um, salary sacrifice when someone's already getting 17%. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, you know, I'm maybe not the best person to ask here uh, because, you know, as, as you guys know, um, you know, I only recently returned to Australia. So if anything, I know much more about the US uh, rules around uh, putting money into your uh, 401k and things like that. Let, let, me, let me take over just a little bit. Back to what Effie was mentioning, there's up to a $25,000 concessional contribution cap, like pre-tax dollars, right? So, so the key thing that every investor in this room has to realize is if you can squirrel that money away, and really the, the caveat is you can't touch it until you reach your 60s, right? That's, that's the big negative about it. But if you can squirrel away a small portion, you're literally getting the difference between your marginal tax rate and 15%. So... Let me break that down for you. That's a 17% risk-free return on your investment just by plonk it into your super, right? If you're at 32 cents on the dollar at your marginal tax rate. If you're at 37, it's around that 22% mark, right? Tax that, you, that, that you're saving. And if you're at 45, if you're lucky enough to have a bit of a buffer that you can put in there, you're literally getting 30% return on investment risk-free. So if you're comfortable with holding out until you reach your 60s, right, depends on the timeline, timeframes and surpluses, maybe it's worthwhile. If you're aiming to, to hit $1 million, right, there are three, there are three scenarios. If, you were, if you've got a 30-year timeline, right, and if you started investing um, for 10 years, if you saved approximately $15,000, right, and got an 8% return on investment and stopped saving and stopped investing and just kept investing the surplus, uh, the, the, the funds that you would have had, over that 30-year period, you'll be a millionaire. Now, if you didn't invest for the first 13 years, 
you would need to double that 15,000 up to 30,000 to become a millionaire over the next 17 years. If you didn't invest for that but, uh, approximately 17 years, right, you would need to save three times that amount to get to the million dollar mark. The earlier you invest, the better it's going to be. Right? So if you can put away $1,000 into your super on a year-to-year basis, you are doing so well because you're getting that marginal tax rate. The difference between marginal tax rate and your, your 15%, that's a risk-free return. Plus, you're only getting taxed 15 cents on the dollar in super. Right? So it's a very, as, as Effie mentioned, it's the most powerful entity to invest in. Right? But there's a bunch of rules associated with it. And you just got to make sure you stay within those boundaries and know the game. Um, question for you, Effie. Any apps for savings and um, investing, micro-investing potentially, if you're starting off with a smaller amount of cash, what would you, what would you send um, our audience members to? If- yeah. The, the big myth is that you need to um, have a lot of money to make money. Makes it a hell of a lot easier, that's for sure. But it's not impossible and it's not supposed to start that way. I mean, you can invest with small amounts, um, and there's lots of platforms now to, to, to have a look and, like I said before, dip your toes into. Um, so if you are wanting to look into, say, exchange-traded funds, and I know there's a lot of questions are, are, are around there, you can actually do that with, with, with rounding up your, your, your change. You can do it with small deposits. Some of them I'd like you to have a look at are Rays. That used to be Acorns. Um, you've got Comsec Pocket, which is another one. Um, my tip with any of these are check the fees. Now, the fees make a big impact if your deposit is small. So if you're going to have a really low balance with only $1,000 in there um, and you're not going to push that up any further, then that, that annual fee is going to be quite high. It depends on, on which one you're looking at. So raise charges a flat fee of $2.50 a month. That adds up to $30 annually. Uh, if your investment grows over. It might not sound a lot, but on a small deposit, it does. Look, I put my kids in, in contact with this to, to, to try and get them excited about investing in exchange-traded funds. I think this is a great way to learn. And look, she's a uni student, so uh, she doesn't have a lot of cash. She's got a part-time job and it rounds up her spending. I've never seen someone become so excited about looking at her dividends, looking at the graph and her dollars going up. And now I think she's ready for the next level, maybe to take some of that money out and go directly into an exchange-traded fund. And there's a lot out there. There's um, uh, a lot that you can look at and see the returns. In fact, I think I've got a few here. Again, I'm moving away from, and Andrew, I'll get you to to jump in about the pros and cons, obviously, because when you're investing in exchange-traded funds, you do pay a brokerage fee if you're going to go directly into them. So it, there's no point drip feeding, you know, $100 in, say, a, a Vanek or a Vanguard. You've really got to save some money in an online saver, then move it over there in a bit more bulk. Um, so some performers there, just to give you an idea where you may want to look, you know, the, the, these are names you've probably heard of before, Vanguard Investments, the biggest fund managers uh, um, ETFs out there. These are the returns over the last five years. So Vanek, you can see they're at 1453 of course, do realise that past performance is no indication of future performance. Do your own research here. Um, but you're looking at, you know, you're not going to get this in a term deposit. You're not going to get this in an online saver. 
We've got news today that the RBA, I think Sean mentioned this, that, you know, RBA, some notes came out that they're considering we may see another rate cut. So if anything, interest rates on saving accounts are going to be really low. The good thing is a lot of you have time on your side. So have a look at some of these names. My tip here is to then go and research more about it. Get on to, to moneysmart.gov.au, a great website to give you the basics. An ETF essentially tracks an index. Um, and I'll, I'll let Andrew go in more into that. But going back into those uh, small deposits. So we had Ray's, we, uh, which was Acorns. We had the Comsec pockets. You can also get into property as well through BrickX. Again, at the moment, yields on property are so low. So the fees are really, and the idea with BrickX, sorry, is that uh, there's, um, you, it's like going on realestate.com. You have a look at these houses, you see the value of them, you can buy into the house, buy bricks. Could be a $99 for bricks, I think they normally package them in 10,000 bricks and investors go in and you enjoy the rental yields like you would own it, but for a small amount. The fees, again, you have a look at the fees and have a look at your investment and what impact it has. For me, these are great um, educational tools to have a dip in and have a go. If you don't want to invest your own money, then also go into the ASX share market game. I think it's still, you might still be able to get in or it might just close. They run it twice a year. They give you, I think, off the top of my head, $50,000 to play with, to learn. It's not, not real money. So have a go at that and, and get, get a feel for it. Yep. And Sean, off the back of that, um, there's a question, a bit of a more technical question. Um, what indicators should we be looking for when regarding a health of a company and buying shares in a company? Yeah, um, that, that's a, you know, what's that, a, a great question. Um, you know, people look at accounting ratios, they look at, you know, the, the overall outlook for that company, um, you know, what sector is that company in, what are the analyst forecasts saying about future earnings for those companies, uh, you know, what's the debt level of the company, uh, and then maybe you look at measures like the price earnings ratio to give you a sense of the, the growth prospects and how expensive that company is, and you might compare that to uh, the PE ratio of other companies in that sector. So there's a few different metrics you might want to uh, think about if you're um, you know, researching a company. So I encourage all of you, and if there's a particular co company that you're maybe excited about or that you've heard about in the media, uh, you can go to the website and download the annual report. Uh, and that's a great place to start in terms of trying to learn more about what that company does and all the areas of its operations. And then it's got all the, the detailed financial statements. Um, you know, it, it's, it's too much to list in terms of every ratio an analyst would look at, but I'm, I'm sure sort of like, you know, there's a lot of general information out there that would help get you started on some of the basic ratios you might like to consider. Our general advice for a lot of people is also thinking about if you do want to enter the stock market, yes, you can think about buying a company, a company's shares, and you know, that, that's perfectly valid. But for a lot of people, they like to get their uh, first investments done through some kind of broad-based index fund or a, sort of like a, a mutual fund that gives you exposure to lots of different companies. So you're not sort of like focused on which company is going to do better than which other company. Yeah, one of the risks that I, I find with, with a, lot of, a lot of folks is they tend to see investing as gambling, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're trying to get a quick win. Back to what Effie said, time in the market rather than timing the market. And far too many people are trying to make it big. You know, they get a good result once and then suddenly it's an expectation. That's the baseline. So what happens is they take more and more and more risk. And yes, sometimes it'll pay off, but a lot of times it won't. And if you put yourself in a position where you can lose the game completely and get out of the game, 
you can really put yourself back five, 10 years if you're not careful, right? So you just have to be extra careful and, and, and come, to, come more, more to these kinds of events, um, webinars and, and the like, to make sure that you, you understand what you're getting into. I, I noticed there's a few questions here about financial advisors and how they rip people off. Absolutely, you have to be very, very careful. Like ultimately, if they if they add value, it's got to make sense. So they've got to be able to articulate the value that they add to, to your life. In and some of these comments are saying they're just charging me an arm and a leg. And if they are, and if they if they can't say how they're going to help you and and essentially put you in a better position where you were, it doesn't make sense. Back to the capital allocation model where you're making a decision: is it stacking up or not? Right? There's always that sleep test. And if you're losing sleep over, um, at night over these decisions, it just doesn't make sense. Unfortunately, there's, there's advisors out there that charge an arm and a leg and uh, they don't particularly do too well with educating people. So, so ultimately, you need to get comfortable with who you work with, the professionals that you work with moving forward. So that's pretty much my, my two cents on that one. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with our experts, Andrew Courtney, Effie Zahos, and Professor Sean Bond. If you would like to hear more from UQ experts, then check out our range of webinars and podcasts on the UQ alumni website, or follow UQ alumni on social media. My name is Lucy Blair, and thanks for listening. <laughs>